0: Today, on page 442, we're going to be reading Psalm 131. Is it, no, it's 130, right? Sorry, make a mistake. Out of the depth I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than a watchman waits for the morning. More than the watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel for all their sins.
1: I wonder if you have ever come to church, a church, this church maybe, and thought, I don't belong here these people. I don't belong here. Many years ago, the English theologian um, Carl Truman, he was regular be, regularly being asked to come and preach at uh, evangelical churches around his area and around the, the country at that time. And, and he was doing it week by week. And as he was visiting these different churches, he really got a feel for the state of the evangelical church in his area in that uh, section of the country he was in and as much as there was to be encouraged by in his visits to these churches, um, their love for Jesus, their passion for the Bible, their zeal for outreach, he noticed one glaring problem and it was this, that all the songs that they sang were really happy, celebratory, uh, uh, praise-positive songs. That's what he Notice, that was a problem. That might not immediately be obvious why that's a problem, but he felt it was a problem. But if we think about it for a moment, we realize that life is not always joyful. And if a person who's been struggling, they've been going through real difficulties in their lives, if they come into a church and, and they're feeling the weight of their disappointment, the, the dark depths of life, and, and they come to church and all the songs are about wanting to dance and wanting to jump and wanting to sing and praise and, and clap and, and smile and, and all, all those things, well, they feel, I'm not, this isn't for me. I don't belong here. Jesus doesn't want me for a sunbeam, for sure. And Truman explains in uh, his essay that he wrote about this, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? is the title of his essay. What Can Miserable Christians Sing? He wrote that it's a sign that Christians have given up something of the richness of the worship contained in the Bible's own hymn book, the Psalms. Because in the Psalms, there are songs about joy and praise, of course there are, and we've we've looked at a few of them over recent weeks, but there are also songs for the discouraged, for the downcast, and for the despairing to sing to God and to sing to one another. And those songs are just as important, maybe sometimes more important. Real life is full of highs and lows, and the Psalms give us words to, to shout from the mountaintops, and they give us words to pray from the deep, dark depths of life. And Psalm 130 is a song for Christians who find themselves in the deep depths. And that, I think, is the first point we need to see in this song, that sometimes Christians will face extreme misery and affliction. Real Christians will. Verse 1, out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. The word depths is, when it's used in other parts of the Bible, it's making reference to the watery depths, the deep darkness of the sea, the sort of place where ships sink and where sailors drown. And the psalmist is Uh, using this imagery here, like a drowning person in the the depths of the sea shouting out, help, crying out, please. Waves crashing over their heads. That's the image. But we know from previous weeks in the Songs of Ascent, these section of 15 songs uh, from the book of Psalms, we know that it is a section that was sang by pilgrims as they were heading up to Jerusalem, heading up to the temple of the Lord to, to praise God in his temple. And so, if you, it, it only takes a moment to look at a map and see, Jerusalem is nowhere near water. Pilgrims traveling from all over Israel, exiles returning from Babylon, they don't have to travel deep water or any water if they don't want to. And so therefore, we shouldn't read this as a cry from the the deep waters of an actual sea, but we should read it as a cry from the deep waters of life. The psychological depths, the, the spiritual deeps. And these are the much more treacherous waters of life. One of my minister friends, he, he, he's married to a, a woman, his wife is um, someone who has struggled with mental illness for the whole of their relationship and even before. And he says that sometimes physical suffering is terrible, but there is a limit to how terrible physical suffering can be. You can only be in so much physical pain or have so bad an injury or have uh, such a terrible disease before it leads to death. And so there is sort of a, a rock bottom to physical suffering, isn't there? You can only struggle so much against the waves before they crash over you and you drown. But there is no limit to relational, to mental. Spiritual distress. There's no rock bottom. And so a person, they can be overwhelmed, they can be exhausted and hopeless, more hopeless than they've ever been before, and then they can wake up the next day to find it only feels worse. And that bottomless pit of despair is where this psalm starts. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Usually the the worse that the suffering is, the less we're able to think clearly about finding a way out. I don't know if you have experienced that, but when I'm physically ill, sometimes Catherine jokes that I just give up and prepare for death. So I say, oh, I have a stuffy nose. I guess this is the end. No more point in eating or drinking anymore. Tell Josiah I loved him. This is it. I guess some might call it man flu. I don't know if any any men in your life have that one. But more seriously, I know that when I feel anxious or I feel depressed about something, that that is when I am least able to think straight about a solution. I tend to withdraw, I tend to avoid the problems, I I tend to distract myself, all those things only making it worse, whatever is causing the anxiety and the distress. And that can be the spiritual reality too. In the deep waters of life, we're sometimes so distracted that if we even are able to open up the Bible, we can't focus on it well enough to get anything out of it. and So we close it and think, well... And we can be so burdened that we can't even pray. So you try to pray, you want to pray, you know you should pray, but actually you don't have anything to say. And we can be so upset that we don't find any comfort in fellowship with other Christians. And so why would I want to go to church? I don't belong there. I don't get anything out of it. And that's the experience, I think, that the psalm, is about. And the psalmist's heart cry is not even for a particular result. Did you see? Maybe he doesn't know what to ask for. He simply asks for the Lord to hear his cry and to be attentive. And if you have ever been in that sort of deep, water, maybe you're in that deep water this morning. Well, then, you need to take comfort from this. Because God's people, genuine, faithful Christians, can sometimes find themselves in deep misery and affliction. And in order to show that you aren't alone, God led somebody through that experience thousands of years ago And he inspired them by his Holy Spirit to write this psalm. And he included it in his Bible to tell you that you are not alone. You aren't alone in that. The church is not a place for just the happy, just the successful, just the well-adjusted people. And worship is not just for when we feel good. That's the first thing we have to take away from this psalm. But what has dragged the psalmist down to the depths here? Up to this point, we haven't been told anything. We we know where he is. We don't know why he's there. And as we keep reading, we find that the source of the deepest depths of despair is much closer to home than we might think. It can feel the worst when sin is the cause of our deepest problems. That is what we see in verse 3. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? The psalmist is drowning in the depths. His whole life, therefore, is passing before his eyes, and he thinks, sin guilt that's what's dragged me down here he suddenly imagines he's standing before a holy god and uh, he's crying out help please mercy uh, lord save and the lord has in his hand this record of all the things that he's done and that thought makes his legs go wobbly he says, I can't stand here. He says, if that is what you do, Lord, I, I can't stand. No one can stand. Now, why is that? Well, there are many psalms of lament which cry out in desperation due to persecution, to betrayal, to lies that are being spread, or oppression and threats, or all kinds of other problems. Lots of psalms like that. And those are real problems. And in all those circumstances, God's people can can cry out to God and say, Lord, help, this isn't right. Save us. But when we're down in the depths due to our own sin, well, that is right. On what basis can I expect God's help when, when I cry out to him for a hearing And when he assesses the situation and he sees the record of my sin, he has every right to say, you made your bed, now lie in it. And when I've rebelled against God, when I've rejected his ways, when I've wronged others and harmed myself, the record of sin shows that the deep waters are perhaps the appropriate place for me. The appropriate place for you. And maybe we can all think of those sorts of examples from our own lives where we have made a mess of things and actually uh, we have uh, entered into deep darkness because of the things that we ourselves have done. I know that I have moments in my life like that. Times I look back to. And our own sin is our deepest problem because it both harms us and disqualifies us from help. Do you see? God's help, we're disqualified from it. That is a deep problem. In fact, it's the central problem of Scripture. What hope is there for a person who has rebelled against God? What help is there for a person who refuses the giver of life? person who has chased after sin and now is, has come to the deep darkness. Well, the third thing we need to see from this psalm is that there is hope for Christians in deep waters. If the psalm starts in the deep, it doesn't remain there. The, the psalmist knows that although he has, uh, his sin has led him to the pit, there is hope for him. But it isn't a hope based on himself in any way whatsoever. Rather, it's based on who God is. We see that as the... We see the basis of Christian hope in verses 4 and 7 particularly. But with you, with you, there is forgiveness. So that we can with reverence serve you. Verse 7. Israel, put your hope in the Lord for with the Lord is unfailing love and with him is full redemption. Despite his sin, the psalmist has all the hope in the world because forgiveness, unfailing love, and redemption are with God. They're with him. They're his constant companions. That is to say, God is not sometimes forgiving. He's not sometimes loving. He's not sometimes redeeming. He is all the time those things. Those things are always found wherever he is. He's always forgiving, loving, redeeming. The same could be said of all his attributes. All the things that we know are true of God. He's always good. He's always true. He's always faithful. He's always able, and and so on and so on. The the theological term for that, in case you want to know, is called divine simplicity. God is is not sometimes one way and sometimes another. He's simple. He's always the same. But you don't have to know the, the technical term to see what the psalmist is pointing to. Some mornings, early in the morning... My son runs into my room. In fact, most mornings he runs into my room and and he announces with great joy that the alarm has gone off. It's wake time. It's wake time, Daddy. And some mornings I will say, that is great, buddy. Good morning to you. I'm so glad to see you. Did you sleep well? Let's go downstairs. But other mornings he will do exactly the same thing And I will say, stop shouting. Be quiet, lay down, don't wriggle. It's not time to get up yet. And you know, Josiah, he has no idea which daddy he's going to meet when he bursts through the door and shouts at the top of his lungs. Is it going to be grumpy daddy or, or loving one? But God is not like that. God is not like changeable human beings who are inconsistent. God is always the same. He never changes. And so he doesn't have good days when we ask him for forgiveness and he says, okay, yeah, no problem. I can do that for you. And then other days when we ask him for forgiveness and he sends a zap. He doesn't do that. Forgiveness is with him. Unfailing love is with him. Redemption is with them all the time. Whoever you are, whenever you turn to him, you will find three companions there. Is that what you expect? That's what the singer, who has no leg to stand on, that's why he can dare to stand before the holy God and say, please help me. It's not that he's obliged to forgive. God is not obligated to forgive anyone for anything, but the psalmist knows who he is speaking to. He knows what his character is like. And he's therefore sure to forgive everyone who turns to him in repentance and faith. And friends, that is why you and I can have hope in even the deepest waters of life. It isn't on the basis of ourselves, not even a little bit on the basis of yourself. God, who has a record of your sins in mind, he knows that we deserve whatever fresh hell we've cooked up for ourselves. But when we cry out to him for help, he hears us. He loves us. He redeems us. He forgives us. And I just want you uh, to briefly note that this is the Old Testament that we're in. You sometimes hear the caricature about the Bible, don't you, that God is so harsh and judgmental in the Old Testament and loving and kind in the New, but that's not true. We see it in this psalm, we see it in all over the place in the Old Testament that God is the same God of grace to his people all the way along, because he doesn't change. He's entirely simple. He's always been forgiving. He's always been full of grace. No distinction between old and new, not on that regard. He's ready to redeem. This is the Lord who has always been. But turn, if you would, to Colossians. Chapter two in the Pew Bible, Colossians, Chapter two, page eight three four, if you have the Pew Bible. Because Paul picks up this imagery of the record of sins and he tells us how it is that God can both see that we are completely undeserving, that we deserve nothing but condemnation and yet he can forgive. In Colossians chapter 2 verse 13, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. What the psalmist knew of God's character is what Jesus proved when he went to the cross. At the cross we see the love, the redemption, the forgiveness of God fully displayed with Jesus in Jesus, Paul says that it was there that he took the written code, that record of our sins, and he he took it onto the cross and he nailed it to the cross, he killed it, he wiped it out and if he would go to such lengths to deal with our sin, then how much more? How much more assured can we be than the psalmist was when he wrote this? That God will help us when we cry out to him from the deep. The record of our sin has been crucified. And so if you're a Christian, whether you feel in the deep this morning or not, whether uh, wherever you are, look to the cross. You don't have to justify yourself. You don't have to pretend that, you're, that the bad things that you have done are not really so bad. You don't have to prove that you're worthy to be loved by God. Nothing about the forgiveness is found in you. You were dead in sin. Christ made you alive. Let the truth of that soak in. Enjoy your forgiveness. Enjoy your forgiveness. But in his his commentary on these verses, John Calvin, he he says that anyone who comprehends verse 3 of Psalm 130 without believing verse 4 will necessarily hate God will live in terror of him and rebel against him. So if you are not a Christian here this morning, maybe you, for whatever reason, haven't uh, given yourself over to the Lord Jesus and said, uh, save me. Well, you need to hear this because maybe you've been running away from God for a long time. Maybe you, like so many people, you've been looking for hope in yourself and you've been saying to yourself, if I could just be... A little better, surely uh, that will make me all right. Maybe you've been trying to cover over the sin in your life and say it's really not that bad, or to make up for it by doing good things. And yet you can't shake the guilt. Well, that's because you know that God has a record. You know that he knows. And when you get tired of trying to justify yourself, you get tired of trying to clear your record with good works, you will resent him. You'll realize you hate him. You know, who is he to be so judgmental? Why is he so unreasonable? I don't want anything to do with him, is what you'll say to yourself. But how foolish that is. Because it's rejecting the only person who can help you. God is, as the psalmist describes him, and he is that loving, that redeeming, that forgiving, as Jesus Christ proves him to be. So, why won't you call out to him? Why won't you find grace from him? And if you will, if you decide, yes, that is the God that I want. If he's really like that, I will go to him. And you go to him, you will find that your heart towards him changes. And the hatred will be replaced by love you'll be able to serve Him with joy. And that is the final point from this psalm, and the one I want to close with this morning, that God Himself is our blessedness and our reward. I think that's the point of verses 5 and 6. That is, uh, when we see the ugliness of our sin, when we see the goodness of God's forgiveness and grace, our whole being is reoriented towards God in, in love and not towards his benefits alone. So, verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. The psalmist, he doesn't just seek forgiveness as though it's some sort of transactional benefit. Like, here is your card of get out of jail free, uh, go in peace. No, that's not what the psalmist wants. It's not what he would be satisfied with. The psalmist wants the Lord himself. I'm waiting for the Lord. When he receives forgiveness, that opens up that relationship with the Lord, and that becomes his only desire. Forgiveness isn't the end goal of the Christian life. It is the God-given means by which we enter into relationship with the Lord. And that is the goal. The Lord is the goal of the Christian life. The word wait in uh, these verses, it's six times in these two middle verses. And it could equally well be translated as hope. So six times in two verses, the psalmist is declaring that the Lord is our only hope. The Lord is your only hope to know Him, to relate to Him, uh, to be solely focused on intimacy with Him. That is what you were made for. Face-to-face relationship with the God of the universe. And we begin to experience that intimacy As soon as we become Christians, God sends his spirit to dwell with us. He lives with us. He walks with us through the heights and the depths of life. And and while we wait for the fullness of that, as we uh, wait to stand before him and see him with our own eyes, God has given his word to help us to keep our eyes focused. I hope in the word of the Lord, says the psalmist. I wait for the Lord more than a watchman waits for the morning. I wait for the Lord more than a watchman waits for the morning. Watchmen on the city walls, they, they keep watch throughout the night because that's when the danger is approaching. They're on high alert to anticipate threats, but they keep watch in anticipation of the morning. Which is when relief, when safety, when rest comes. It's never in any doubt that the morning is coming. Even in the darkest hours of the night, the morning is coming. And the watchman is waiting. And more confidently, more expectantly than the watchman waits for the morning, Christian people, God's people, wait for the Lord. No doubt. That face-to-face relationship is coming. Fellowship with Him. And therefore, we can keep watch through the darkness of this present moment, whatever the present moment holds for you. You can keep watch. The day is coming soon. So what can miserable Christians sing? Well, they can sing about their misery and sin and they don't have to sugarcoat it at all. But they can sing about the darkness and disappointment of this world and they don't have to pretend like it isn't when they feel that it's just black. Because they know the one that they're waiting for and they can sing of him. They know his companions are forgiveness and love and redemption. And they know that he will redeem Israel, all of his people, from all their sins. And that will be enough for miserable Christians to sing. Let's pray. Father, I pray for every person here. I don't know what's happening in their lives. You do. I don't know if they feel like they're drowning in the depths. But Lord, I pray that this song would come to them as a lifeboat. As a hand reaching out to them and saying, I'm here. Lord God, I praise you. That wherever people call out to you, they find you as you're not far from any one of us. And Lord, I pray that you administer to any going through darkness right now and bring them through to a place uh, where they can sing with joy, but help them to sing their sorrows to you even in this moment. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.